Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, according to the time and place you listen to us at this moment. My name is Armando Conte, and you are listening to the series Governance in Africa, Conversations from the Center of African Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies, part of the University of London in the United Kingdom. This program is a part of the Governance for Development in Africa initiative funded by the Moore Ibrahim Foundation. The initiative aims to enable Africans to improve the quality of governance in their countries by supporting them to develop skills and talents within an expert academic environment. The focus is to study both the legal aspects of governance and the relationship between governance and economic development. The studio guest today is Dr. Daniel Kaufman. Dr. Kaufman is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in the United States and was previously director at the World Bank Institute leading the work on governance and anti-corruption. Dr. Kaufman, welcome to SOAS and thank you for talking to us and sharing with us your expertise and knowledge of governance. Good afternoon, Mr. Conte. It is my pleasure to be here. There's a lot of uh, contention around the exact relationship between good governance and economic growth in developing countries. To what extent do you think controlling corruption and promoting good governance in Africa is necessary for its economic development? Controlling corruption and improving governance is absolutely crucial for improving the development prospects, not only of Africa, but anywhere in the developing world, in any um, of the emerging uh, economies. Uh, there's a vast amount of research that uh, has been done, including by us, but not, not only, that shows a very clear link going from improving governance, which takes very difficult work at the political level, economic reforms, and so on, which goes from having anti-corruption efforts on the one hand to having better results in terms of economic growth. There is what we call the 300% development dividend of good governance, which means that if a country improves in terms of its rule of law, in terms of its voice and democratic accountability, in terms of its control of, of corruption, it can expect in the long term to have three times more in terms of per capita income, to go from $1,000 per capita for its citizens today in the long run to have $3,000. So it's an enormously good pay payoff. Of course, like in everything else, the devil is in, in the details. There are other factors that also matter. We should not um, be too dogmatic about it. Good governance and controlling corruption is not the only determinant of development. Macroeconomic stabilization is very important too. Human capital is very important. Some uh, measure of political stability. There, there are a number of, of, of factors that also matter. At the end of the day, however, even those other factors, like good macroeconomic policies, depend also on good governance and depends on anti-corruption efforts. The same about human capital. Human capital is crucial, education and health. But if you have a completely corrupt system, then the whole health and education system breaks down too. So even there, they are, they are related. So it's absolutely crucial to have good governance and controlling corruption. And the 
the success cases show that in Africa and in other places, as we see it in, in countries like Botswana, countries like Ghana, more recently countries like Tan Tanzania, and in other continents, my own country, Chile in Latin America, show that if you do the homework first in terms of improving governance, controlling corruption, which has been done, not perfectly, no country is perfect, but if it, if it is being done, then development does take place. And in my country, I have seen it in less than one generation. We have seen the results from 1989, from when an authoritarian <coughs> dictator, Pinochet, leased power, the country has 45% of its population below the poverty line. Today, it's 13%. One, three, one of the most dramatic improvements in terms of poverty reduction. And that's thanks to that democratic effort over a 20-year period. Amazing. Uh, it seems quite confident, Dr. Kaufman, that uh, improving governance is a key for development. Is there any way of, of uh, actually supporting your observation with, with evidence? Until... About 20 years ago, there was a huge challenge in the whole governance field. On the one hand, on the economic field, and I'm an economist by training, we had all this data on poverty, on GDP, and, and so on, the economic traditional data. But we didn't have data on governance. How could we measure rule of law? How could we measure corruption? Uh, w that whole field was considered unmeasurable. We, with others, challenged that, and a, an empirical or data revolution was, was started. Transparency International um, was very much at the forefront of that. They started doing their index on, on, on corruption. We started working on our service. And with the preliminary data that we had, we started seeing in the data that those countries that had better governance, we created a whole set of governance indicators, which is now totally in the web, very transparently, six different governance indicators. One is control of corruption, but also rule of law, political stability, the effectiveness of the government and the bureaucracy, the regulatory quality, and, and, and so on. They are all there. And we started seeing that there is a link between those numbers, that evidence on governance on the one hand and on the economic development results on the other. Not only on GDP, which I mentioned before, but in terms of infant mortality. We have written papers on how infant mortality is reduced by two-thirds when a country improves on its governance, rule of law, and then controls cor corruption again in the long, long term. It also reduces its illit illiteracy level. So it's in terms of social development is, is crucial too. So there's a vast body of data that over the past 15 years has, has uh, been put together and one can, can find it uh, all in the world. But also, let me very frankly suggest that it's not just the data, the research, and having the researcher hat. Uh, many people, including myself, have also been practitioners in development. I used to work for a long time at the World Bank, as you suggested. Um, I was very involved in projects throughout the world, including in Africa and Latin America, in Asia, and seeing it with one's own eyes in terms of the evidence of what works at the project level, a project that is funded, whether from outside or by domestic funders or by the budget, 
But if it's implemented in a corrupt environment, it's going to fail. If it's implemented in a much better environment, it produces a result. So we have also the evidence and the data at the project level. We also have data from the entrepreneurs, from the firms. A firm that has to operate in a corrupt environment is not succeeding around the world. We have databases of 10,000 firms for every year, and we analyze that, and we see it at the firm level. So it's not just abstract information for with one national average. It's looking at the citizen service, it's looking at the service of entrepreneurs, it's looking at the projects we work on as well. Would you say that is a lack of accountability uh, for this bad management in certain African countries about the economy? Well, obviously, the problem of, uh, of governance, and governance is such a vague concept, so it's important to, to, to have a notion and a definition. We, we see it, we define it as a set of institutions by which authority in a country is exercised. And that is then unpackaged in terms of political governance dimensions, economic governance dimensions and institutional governance dimensions. And that's where we bring in rule of law, we bring the effectiveness of the regulations and the public service provision of macroeconomics and of the regul and, and, and of, of uh, the policies done, as, as well as voice and democratic accountability. So accountability, the whole issue of accountability is one very important dimension of the whole governance uh, spectrum. And in, in many cases where there is poor governance, there is a failure of accountability. But let's be careful. There is a tendency from, uh, to, to suggest that the problem is very African in nature. And let me just suggest two things about that. First, Africa, like Latin America, my own continent, is incredibly diverse. And it's very misleading to just make an average and to generalize about the whole continent because you have Equatorial Guinea on the on, and, and Zimbabwe on the one hand, and you have Ghana and Mauritius and Botswana and now Tanzania and others that are, are making on the other. And there's an enormous difference between the, the, the quality of governance and anti-corruption between those different places. The same applies in, in, in uh, Latin America. Um, and second, many of these findings that we're finding about the importance of good governance and corruption, they apply everywhere else too. We have those issues, as we well know, in the rich world too. They're more sophisticated, they're different, but let's, if we look closely what's happening in Greece nowadays, mm-hmm. it's a failure of governance. It's a massive failure of governance. I have been studying and writing about the financial crisis and what happened in the United States and Wall Street and wo- how Wall Street captured many of the regulations and the policies of the government in the United States. That was a failure of governance. So we need to be careful in, in not implying here that Africa as a region, number one, is a basket case, which is not, or second, that this is just an African problem. Uh, that's amazing. What's your view on the role of foreign aid place in development in Africa? Well, we hear so often, because it's a big debate in the media, on the one extreme, aid is dead. And that's uh, the book by Dambisa Moyo. I read it in your your blog. (laughs) You read it in my uh, blog. And you have other proponents of dead aid or like that, like 
like uh, the the well-regarded professor in Colombia, Bill Easterly, um, and and there are a number of of such aid critics on that camp. And then you have the other uh, extreme that uh, essentially suggests that aid drives development and is absolutely crucial and it's overall quite successful. And uh, you have Jeffrey Sachs as, as a proponent uh, until not long ago in a very unqualified world, um, very important artists like Bono, uh, Geldof, and, and uh, 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 many others like that, but also many of the, the, the donor agencies, the official donor agencies who were in that, in that industry propagate that uh, feature. Both of those visions are really absurd are extremes which um, perhaps they are important to catch the attention of the media for an important issue. But the reality, and we look closely at the, the uh, evidence, I would summarize it differently. I would summarize neither aid being dead, mm. not being the panacea or the driver for development, but aid is troubled today, but it does have potential to make a big difference if aid undergoes major reforms and the aid agencies do it better in, 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 the, in, the, in the future. Um, in terms of the, the past lessons, there are many failures of aid, and we have seen many in Africa, but there are also successes which are sometimes are not sufficiently um, appreciated, including cases like Ghana, but also very interesting case that is not being paid sufficient attention because they don't consider the country yet, and that's Somaliland in, in all of Africa. Mm -hmm. that's, it's very interesting how Somaliland may, may, be, may be doing. And it's not just a success of aid, but it's a success of, of development. But then we, we have others. There's El Salvador, there's Chile, there's South Korea, and there are others. But then, unfortunately, there are many failures in, in aid. I think it's time to step back and study post-study or the failures and the successes and, and, uh, and, and, and take a much more nuanced or complex view. What matters in particular if aid is well-governed, if the institution providing the aid ensures that the me mechanism that is not going to be corrupted are there, but as important is that it's money that goes to a country that has a commitment and is taking steps to improve governance and for anti-corruption. If, if aid goes to a corrupt government, it's wasted. There's still too much aid that goes directly to the central government, whether it is well-governed or uncorrupt or not. And that's why aid gets a bad name. But it is much more selectivity, not always going to government, go working with civil society, go working at the village level, working with the private sector. Um, especially when central government is very troubled or working at the local government, but m uh, being much more creative. But that requires a mindset changes, especially among some of the official aid organizations, which are so accustomed to go there and visit with the head of the state and with the top ministers and so on. So I think it's, it's time for a major revamp, but not throwing the baby out with the bad water. I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, but um, there are people that believe that uh, 
you know, uh, the conditions, you know, the criteria of giving aids, you know, to, to African countries, you know, the criteria imposed by the donors also contribute to the mad, bad management. What do you think about that? The aid industry are not without fault and they are not angels. Um, first, it's very important to look at at the aid donor uh, institution or country in particular. Different countries have different political objectives and uh, and sometimes it's a it's a geopolitical interest that drives the aid decision by a country, if it's a war on terror, if it's an, an, an ally on something that can be totally unrelated to the development objective. So part of, part of the problem, and you, you implied in your question, is that the main objective for a particular bilateral donor official country in giving aid is not always to ensure that the developmental the development objective in the recipient country is achieved, but is to fulfill some of their own political objectives. So obviously that's a question. But even when there, there is a genuine intent, and there is among many organizations, including my former organization, the World Bank, I think they truly believe in the mission of poverty alleviation. But sometimes they're misguided approaches in terms of how to deliver the aid with too much of a blind belief that the central government may deliver the goods even when there is information that there may be misgovernance and corruption. And also there is political correctness because there are pressures not to bring out in the open the extent of lack of governance and corruptions uh, uh, sometimes. So they, they they are incentives. So one, for that again, one has to do the homework, donor by donor, and what drives it, rather than lumping them all together and, th- and, and throwing the whole thing out. I think there is hope, and, and some institutions are doing better than others, and there are some countries that are doing better than others that show, in Obama's words, yes, we can. So let's not go to the extreme of dead is, the, that aid is dead. That's, that's silly, and it catches the attention of the media, but that's not true. But let's not go to the other extreme of being total spin that aid is doing just well, thank you very much. And the only problem, like some, some say that the, the main problem is that the rich countries are not generous enough. And if only they pumped so much more money, the problems of Africa and others will be solved. It's not just a question of money. Professor Daniel Kaufman, there appears to be two types of corruptions in Africa. One which involves large sums of money, such as the government corruption at the high level, and lower level corruption called petty bribery. That can be payments to teachers who do not show up to school, which is also called quiet corruption in new reports by the World Bank. In your opinion, what are the most important and damaging manifestations of corruptions in Africa? Uh, There is a report recently out uh, by the World Bank where they they made the case that quiet corruption is is crucial and they focus on issues like the absenteeism by teachers or or by healthcare workers that don't show up at work. Um, Frankly, these is a problem, of course. Uh, Who would deny that? But that has been known by Africans for decades, 
and it's it's it, it is an issue and it is a concern. Um, but the the problem of bringing it out now as a huge problem and is as if that was the fundamental issue is that it hides the fact that it's only a symptom of much more fundamental fundamental institutional problems that come come from the top. Mm. If those are symptoms that basically the whole system of education, even including up to the at the ministry level, must not be functioning well. So pretty quickly, if we do our homework well in terms of analysis, we have to go up the ladder. And I know it's not politically correct, and that's why some uh, organizations issue reports that only focus on the petty thing. It's very easy to blame a, a traffic, an unnamed traffic police. It's much more difficult to write a report about high-level corruption. But very, very quickly, one, one goes up the ladder and sees that there is, in some countries, significant amount of high-level uh, corruption. And high-level corruption takes place in, in different ways. One is, is through, pro, uh, through large procurement uh, projects. There's also diversion of funds, both from the budget, but also aid, aid funds. But there's also, there are other forms nowadays that are becoming increasingly important, not just in Africa, including in the rich world in, and in Latin America. And one of them, which we have labeled the name state capture, is mm -hmm. capture of the state. Um, and uh, by politicians being in cahoots with the elite of the private sector that basically manage to influence the laws, the regulations, and the policies of, of, the, of the state. And that's why we call it state capture, for their own, their own benefit. Sometimes through payoffs, sometimes through bribes, uh, sorry, sometimes through favors, sometimes through an offer of employment or employment on the, on the site. Those are hugely costly issues. We saw it in Wall Street uh, too, so it's not just uh, in, in Africa. So I think it's a disservice right now to Africa and to other continents to only focus on whether teachers are absent or present or whether they say a little bribe being paid for a permit or a traffic policeman. Of course there are issues and that need needs to be addressed. But if one only tries to address the symptom without figuring out the politics and how to address the major lack of governance and political problem of high-level corruption, one is not going to make sufficient progress. If you are saying that controlling corruption is very important in Africa, then how can African states fight corruptions. Is there any silver bullet to do that? Well, the first thing that I think is very important is one, one famous writer a few hundred years ago said, in, in, when asked in defining what is an expert, he said, it's somebody from out of town, which I think it's, it's I had to say it because it's not for me to pretend that I can give the answer to when a head of state asks me or a higher government official, okay, what should we do about corruption in our country? The first answer is that, look, it's your commitment. If you're committed, you, I can suggest a process of consultation and with expertise that you have locally to arrive to a consensus because consensus building is crucial 
to for a strategy and a program which is going to be tailored right to a country. So I would not want to pretend that one from outside, an expert from out of town, can come with a Bible or a recipe of exactly what needs to be done. What I can suggest from the, on the basis of experience and research is three or four things that in very general terms do work, but then the devil will be in the details and the country has to tailor it to its purpose. First, perhaps to start what doesn't work, and it's another set of myths. Too much knee-jerk tendencies to start anti-corruption campaigns. Basically, one does not fight corruption by fighting corruption, which means that by having another promulgation that we start an anti-corruption campaign by a head of state, another anti-corruption commission, a new anti-corruption law. All the countries have decent laws. That's not the problem. It's implementation of those laws and the other reforms which are needed. So first, let's forget all these political correct things that we need to start another commission and, and another code of conduct and, and, and so on. Instead, focusing on the more, more difficult political reform issues. One is providing more voice and democratic accountability to the population, which you, you did mention. It's absolutely crucial, including, crucially, free press. If you have free press and more investigative journalists and so on who can expose this, that helps. It's not the full solution, perhaps. Rule of law is absolutely crucial, obviously. And transparency, and there is a set, there's a new set of transparency reform being implemented in many countries in the world, including my own in, in, in Chile and Tanzania, which is, which is uh, crucial. So those, those are just general guideposts. Professor Daniel Kaufman, are Western institutions and governance models really appropriate in Africa? And uh, isn't the problem of corruption culturally and historically driven? Okay. Then, uh, I think we can address two, quickly, two myths in, in this. One is that, that corruption and bad governance, bad rule of law is intractable because it's so historically and culturally driven. That's not the case. Culture and history matters, but it's nothing deterministic about it. And we have seen it in a number of countries in Africa that in spite of s very similar historical background, and cultural background than other countries, they do so differently. I mean, Botswana and Zimbabwe, Chile and Argentina, Poland and Ukraine, the two Koreas. One can compare neighboring countries and they can go in different. So history and culture, important, but it's not deterministic. Leadership, policies, transparency, voice, democratic accountability, what we just m mentioned is crucial. The other it is that, uh, yes, international financial organizations and the donor agencies have also responsibility and accountability there. Not always uh, the right thing has been done. At first, there was a little bit of the template of conditionality which was, was needed and an and attempt to fulfill, fulfill that. I think there's been some learning and recognition that country context does matter. Nowadays, the main problem is that there's not sufficient po political backbone and nerve to say this is absolutely crucial and to, to have a very frank engagement with the country on, on governance. But the governance strategy has to, um, and reforms have to be led by the country. But the aid organizations could 
be much more strategic in focusing in helping the country with that rather than still feeling very nervous about these issues of good governance and corruption. Dr. Daniel Kaufman, we can stay here for another two hours, but we can't. Um, Our time is up. Thank you very much for sharing with us your experience in uh, African uh, governance. And uh, if listeners want to uh, know about your work and your uh, sharing your experience, where they can go? Well, maybe as a one-stop shop is to to start with a with a blog, which is uh, it's it's called the Kaufman Governance Post, and it's www.thekaufmanpost.net. Thank you very much for coming here. Thank you, my pleasure.